this is a content warning for the upcoming episode. This book and also my discussion of it does feature scenes of domestic violence, infanticide, discussion of suicide and sexual assault as well. So the episode kind of keeps those things to a minimum, but I do read some extracts which do mention um, gore and murder and domestic violence. So bear that in mind. And for now, on with the episode. everybody and welcome back to Witch Fix. Today I'm going to be talking about the first book in a new series that I've just started called Rivers of London by Ben Aronovich, uh, who is described as a Sunday Times best-selling author on the uh, front of the book. Now this series is quite confusing because it comprises graphic novels, short novellas, audio only books, so uh, it is quite confusing, uh, but this is the first novel in the series, and I'm going to be looking at the novels as opposed to the graphic novels, and etc, etc, etc. And we'll be also uh, not going into the novellas uh, around the novel series. There are currently, I think, nine novels in that series. Uh, there might be a new one coming out soon, which doesn't yet feature on the Wikipedia list, but from what I can see, it is nine, and Rivers of London is the first. Uh, ben Aronovich has also written for other famous things including Casualty and Doctor Who. You might have seen two of these books in my thrifting in Bristol haul. I went away and I bought the first one in the series because the two that I picked up were actually the second and third, which I thought was weird at the time, but now I think that someone bought all three books, read the first one, hated it, and then isn't going to read books two and three and so donated them. Because that's sort of where I'm at with this book. There are a lot of things that I enjoyed about it but there are also a lot of things that I genuinely hated and it was a real real struggle to get through this. I thought this was going to be my first did not finish of the podcast uh, but I soldiered through because I wasn't prepared to let that happen uh, and now I'm going to get into my experience with the book. So here's the blurb. My name is Peter Grant and I used to be a probationary constable in that mighty army for justice known to all right-thinking people as the Metropolitan Police Service and to everyone else as the filth. My story really starts when I tried to take a witness statement from a man who was already dead. There is something dark at the heart of the city I love. This blurb neatly frames one of my issues with the book was that it was written in first person, which I'm not holding against the book and I'm not saying that you shouldn't read it because it's in first person. I just generally prefer novels to be written in third person, so I was a little bit um, kind of having a, a struggle with it to, to start with because first person, not really my favourite. But there we go and that's just a personal thing. Now the setting of the book is that Peter Grant, who is a mixed race constable with the uh, London police, I've been trying to find some more diverse books that aren't just, you know, white ladies as the protagonist, and obviously having a male protagonist and also a protagonist of colour, pretty cool. Um, so that that was quite interesting, and, and the general description of his experiences within the police was also very interesting. It was kind of weird that it was written by an author who is not a person of colour, but there we go. Um, so the general idea behind the book is that Peter has this sort of supernatural experience with a ghost uh, while he's keeping an eye on a, an active crime scene and he's then through various um, instances and situations drawn into what is essentially the magic arm of the London police which is one guy who's, who's currently trying to deal with it and he becomes this guy's apprentice uh, and starts learning how to be a wizard and learning magic spells and generally trying to deal with occult crime or supernatural occurrences that the rest of the Met can't deal with. 
uh, although the other members of the Metropolitan Police are aware of this department and they're not really required to hide these supernatural things from the rest of the police, uh, just from the general public. So that's quite an interesting take on it. I was really pleased with that, with the originality behind that idea. It wasn't really something that I'd read before. The only thing that came close was really the Magpie series, which I've already reviewed, which is set in, in a historical period and is more about uh, a secret organisation which is more divorced from the police. Um, and it has very different magical lore. So this was still quite an original concept, an original idea. I also really like the characters. Um, I like Peter's kind of dry witticisms that he comes out with when he's describing things. And for that reason, it working in first person, it, was, it was quite good because we got his perspective on all the things from the architecture of buildings in London to just the way in which the police operates, which I found quite interesting. Uh, I also really liked Beverly Brooke, who is a, a character who's introduced. Basically, one of the ongoing tensions in London is between Mother Thames and Father Thames. Uh, who both rule different parts of the Thames. Mother Thames has the, the sort of urban bit which actually goes through London and Father Thames is upstream in, in the more rural areas near the Thames's source and their children are all the offsprings, offshoots and different rivers that feed into the Thames uh, and Beverly is one of those. I found those characters really interesting, specifically Beverly because she's just kind of funny as well as Peter being funny. Same with Leslie who is Peter's friend in the police. Um, they're all kind of amusing and sarcastic and they, they kind of work great together as a group. I also like the fact that Beverly was this sort of water nymph creature which isn't really heavily looked into in the book but it's kind of an interesting concept that she spends quite a lot of her time in the river and she has like a waterproof mobile phone because she spends so much time underwater and has these powers that are associated with the river. Another kind of original concept was the idea of vestigia which um, is what they used to describe the kind of imprint that magical events leave on areas and buildings it's all like magic traces that peter is able to sense and interpret uh, which isn't something that i haven't seen elsewhere but was definitely interesting to have it at the forefront of a book like this there's also a section in the book where peter and his mentor go and take care of a nest of vampires um which was an interesting look at what vampires are like in this universe it's not really a way that i've seen them done before the closest thing that it reminded me of was uh, the strain if you've ever seen that program basically they go to the house and the house is normal it just kind of looks like people moved out but didn't take any of their stuff with them but there's kind of an antiseptic air about it like there's no mold anywhere the air smells kind of stale but not mildewed or musty in any way it's literally like nothing can live in this house. It's just become completely sterile and lifeless. And uh, he notices that there's like grey, like fine powder coming out of the electronics, like they've been corroded by something. And then they find these like lifeless bodies in the uh, basement area. And these are obviously the vampires. And it's explained later that they actually feed on magical energy and life energy. Uh, as opposed to, I guess, blood. It does say that they do feed on blood, but they don't really know why. So again, that's like interesting lore and, and things to bring in. The cool case at the heart of this particular novel, Rivers of London, focuses around these random episodes of violence between two or more people. Um, the first instance, which is what draws uh, Peter into the case, is that a man is approached by another man in um, a courtyard in London and has his head 
knocked off with a big stick which is obviously very weird and strange and they uh, find out that the man who did it his face changed before he did it i wasn't really clear on how his face had changed because of one of my biggest issues with the book uh, which i'll get into in a moment um but slowly they begin to see other instances of this exact thing happening elsewhere not always knocking people's heads off but other violent things occurring and they're kind of following this trail of violent instances to try and find out what's behind them now one of the main issues that i had with the book aside from quite a number of the scenes being quite drawn out was that it is quite confusing in places and the writing gets very muddled particularly when there is an action scene um it becomes very difficult to work out what's going on and i kind of relied upon the characters discussing what had happened afterwards to actually work it out and occasionally when they were having these kind of um debrief sessions when they were talking about what happened they would say things that i was like wait is that actually what happened how do we know this and it wasn't clear to me if I should know that from the scene or if this was new information that was being brought up in the current scene, which bothered me a lot. And it made the book kind of hard to read at times because I was just reading whole sections where there was stuff that I didn't understand happening. Uh, and I'm just going to read you an example of this from page 60 and 61. Peter and his friend, who's also a police officer, Leslie, have arrived at a man's house to question him as he is the chief suspect in the first murder to occur in the book. They think that he was involved in this because the dead guy's dog bit him on the nose uh, and they had a little fight about this at a park. And then they met up again later that night. They have CCTV footage um, showing that guy the area. and They believe he was involved in the murder. When they arrive at the house, um, there's a lot of commotion going on. And then the baby, uh, this guy's baby, is thrown from an upper story window, uh, through an upper story window, and lands on the ground. Leslie stays behind to try and, and do first aid and CPR on the baby. And Nightingale, who is Peter's um, wizard master, I guess, uh, takes him into the house um, to try and find out what's going on. And then the following occurs. Grant, get in here, called Nightingale. His voice was steady, business-like. It got me moving up the steps and onto the porch. Nightingale must have kicked the front door right off its hinges because I had to run right over it to get into the hall. We had to stop to work out where the fuck the noise was coming from. The woman screamed again upstairs. There was a thumping sound like someone beating a carpet. A voice, I thought might be a man's, but very high-pitched, was screaming, Have you got a headache now? I don't even remember the stairs. Suddenly I was on the landing with Nightingale in front of me. I saw August Coopertown lying face down at the far end of the landing, one arm thrust through a gap in the banisters. Her hair was wet with blood and a pool was growing under her cheek. A man stood over her holding a wooden baton at least a metre and a half in length. He was panting hard. Nightingale didn't hesitate. He pulled forwards, shoulders down, obviously planning to take the man down in a rugby tackle. I charged too, thinking I'd go high to pin the man's arms after he'd gone down. But the man whirled around and casually backhanded Nightingale with enough force to slam him into the banisters. I was staring right at his face. I assumed it must be Brandon Coopertown, but it was impossible to tell. I could see one of his eyes, but a great flap of skin had been peeled back from around his nose and was covering the other eye. Instead of a mouth, he had a bloody maw full of white flecks of broken teeth and bone. I was so shocked that I stumbled and fell, which was what saved my life when Coopertown swung the baton at me and it passed right over my head. I hit the ground and the bastard ran right over me, one foot slamming down on my back and blowing the air out of my lungs. I rolled over as I heard his feet on the stairs and managed to get onto my hands and knees. There was something wet and sticky under my fingers and I realised there was a thick trail of blood leading across the landing and down the stairs. 
There was a crash and a series of thumps from the hallway below. You need to get up, constable, said Nightingale. What the fuck was that? I asked as he helped me up. I looked down into the hallway where Coopertown, or whatever the hell it was, had fallen, mercifully face down. I really have no idea, said Nightingale. Try to stay out of the blood trail. I went down the stairs as fast as I could. The fresh blood was bright red, arterial. I guessed it must have found him out of the hole in his face. I bent down and gingerly touched his neck, looking for a pulse. There wasn't one. What happened? I asked. Peter, said Inspector Nightingale. I need you to step away from the body and walk carefully outside. We mustn't contaminate the scene any more than we have already. So obviously because that scene is in first person, it's very frenetic, there's a lot of action going on. It's easy to get lost in it and to not really know what's happening. But I kind of lose track of Mr. Coopertown, the assailant, halfway through that scene because he steps over Peter, steps on Peter. And then I didn't know how he got to the bottom of the stairs because there's this blood and then he's face down. Did he jump? Did he fall? What happened there? And it's not really very clear and doesn't necessarily get cleared up later on. There's a lot of scenes like that, just where everything was quite slippery in terms of details. I couldn't really work out what was happening. And given that the later scenes in the book take place during a riot, it does get very, very complicated and very confusing. And I found myself kind of wishing that there would be a little bit more clarity in terms of who was where and who was doing what. Particularly because there are so many pairs or groups of individuals who are involved in these crimes, which are separate crimes, because there's obviously this that happens at the house, there's the original murder, then there are later murders and also the inciting incidents behind those murders. And a lot of people are just referred to as by their last names. I started losing track of who was who, and it would have been helpful in sentences about those characters to be reminded that oh, this was this person and this is what happened to them because I started losing track big time of who was who and who had been involved in which incident. Another example of this confusion is sometimes uh, in the explanations of the magic or magical events that take place. It's not entirely clear how something works or why something is working. And this is something that is exemplified referring to the autopsy of Mr. Coopertown uh, in pages 68 and 69. Below the neck, said Dr. Walid, is a physically fit man in his late forties. It's his face that holds our interest here, or rather what was left of his face. Dr. Walid had used clamps to splay open the torn flaps of skin so that Brandon Coopertown's face looked horribly like a pink and red daisy. Starting with the skull, said Dr. Walid, and leaned in with a pointer, Nightingale followed suit, but I contented myself with peering over his shoulder. As you can see, there's extensive damage to the bones of the face. The mandible, maxilla and zymatic bones have been effectively pulverised and the teeth, those normally reliable survivors, have been shattered. A heavy blow to the face, asked Nightingale. That would be my first guess, said Dr Walid, if not for this. He used a clamp to seize one flap of skin. I guessed what had once covered the cheek and draw it over the face. It reached right across the breadth of the skull and flopped down to cover the ear on the other side. The skin has been stretched beyond its natural capacity to retain its shape. And while there's not much left of the muscle tissue, that too shows lateral degradation. Judging from the lines of stress, I'd say something pushed out his face around the chin and nose, stretching the skin and muscle, pulverising the bone and then holding it in position. Then whatever it is holding it in that shape vanishes. The bone and soft tissues have lost all their integrity and basically his face falls off. Are you thinking dissimuli? asked Nightingale. Or a technique very like it, said Dr Walid. Nightingale explained for my benefit that dissimulo was a magic spell that could change your appearance. 
Actually, he didn't use the words magic spell, but that's what it amounted to. Unfortunately, said Dr. Waleed, it essentially moves the muscles and skin into new positions, and this can cause permanent damage. Never was a popular technique, said Nightingale. You can see why, said Dr. Waleed, indicating the remains of Brander Coopertown's face. Any signs that he was a practitioner, asked Nightingale. Dr. Waleed produced a covered stainless steel tray. I knew you'd ask that, he said, so here's something I whipped out earlier. He lifted the cover to reveal a human brain. I'm no expert, but it didn't look like a healthy brain to me. It looked shrunken and pitted, as if it had been left out in the sun to shrivel. As you can see, said Dr. Waleed, there's extensive degradation of the cerebral cortex and evidence of intracranial bleeding that we might associate with some form of degenerative condition, if Inspector Nightingale and I were not already familiar with the true cause. He sliced it in half to show us the interior. It looked like a diseased cauliflower. And this, said Dr. Waleed, is your brain on magic. Magic does that to your brain, I asked. No wonder nobody does it anymore. This is what happens if you overstep your limitations, said Nightingale. He turned to Dr. Waleed. There wasn't any evidence of practice at his house. No books, no paraphernalia, no vestigium. Could someone have stolen his magic, I asked, sucked it out of his brain? That's very unlikely, said Nightingale. It's almost impossible to steal another man's magic. Except at the point of death, said Dr. Waleed. It's much more likely that our Mr. Coopertown did this to himself, said Nightingale. Then you're saying he wasn't wearing a mask during the first attack, I asked. That seems likely, said Nightingale. So his face was mashed up on Tuesday, I said, which explains why he looks blotchy on the bus cameras. Then he flies to America, stays three nights and comes back here. And all that time his face is essentially destroyed. Dr. Willie thought it through. That would be consistent with the injuries and the evidence of the beginnings of regrowth around some of the bone fragments. He must have been in some serious pain, I said. Not necessarily, said Nightingale. One of the dangers of dissimulo is that it hides the pain. The practitioner can be quite unaware that he's injuring himself. But when his face was normal looking, that was only because the magic was holding it together. Dr. Waleed looked at Nightingale. Yes, said Nightingale. When you fall asleep, what happens to the spell? I asked. It would probably collapse, said Nightingale. But he was so badly damaged that once the spell collapsed, his face would fall off. He'd have had to keep this spell up the whole time he was in America, I said. Are you telling me he didn't sleep for four days? It does seem a bit unlikely, said Dr. Waleed. Do spells work like software? I asked. Nightingale gave me a blank look. Dr. Waleed came to the rescue. In what way? he asked. Could you persuade somebody's unconscious mind to maintain the spell? I asked. That way the spell would stay running, even when they were asleep. It's theoretically possible, but morality aside, I couldn't do it, said Nightingale. I don't think any human wizard could. Any human wizard? Okay. Dr. Waleed and Nightingale were looking at me and I realised they were already there and waiting for me to catch up. When I asked about ghosts, vampires and werewolves, and you said I hadn't scratched the surface, you weren't joking, were you? Nightingale shook his head. I'm afraid not, he said. Shit, I said. Dr. Willie smiled. I said exactly the same thing 30 years ago, he said. So whatever did this to poor old Mr. Coopertown was probably not human, I said. I realised that was quite a long chunk to read out for you guys. Uh, but what I was getting at was that it's quite confusing at the end here what they are actually talking about. So they're talking about how he's used this spell to change his face and that the second that he stopped using the spell to hold his face in shape, it would fall off in these like bloody pieces and his bones would break and his teeth would come out because of the damage that changing his face in the first place did. And they're saying that he couldn't have kept this spell up for four days because he'd have had to sleep and as soon as you go to sleep the spell would stop working and your face would come off but then they go on to say that whatever did this to him was not human 
And this confused me because I was like, okay, but they're saying that this is a spell that he's done to himself. So how is the spell being performed by an outside source now? And apparently one that didn't have to sleep. So are they saying that he did the spell on himself or are they suspecting that an outside source performed the spell on him and then didn't sleep for four days, meaning that they're not human? It's, it's, it's slightly confusing uh, about how it works and what's happening. And it doesn't really get clearer the more murders and crimes take place. And maybe it was just me being dim or like it was my first, first read through and I was getting confused. But it did kind of annoy me that I had to keep going back over sections to try and work out what it was they were actually saying. But to be honest, I was kind of all right with it and having an OK time with the book. And I was keen to get to the bottom of the, the murder mysteries. But then something happened and it happened on page 146, which kind of dented my goodwill towards the book. And it was this section. Uh, they've essentially gone to see a doctor who was attacked by a cycle courier he was trying to treat at a hospital. And they've gone to his house and I think his wife is the only person there. Uh, so they're, they're talking to her. So basically what I'm trying to make clear from that explanation is that we don't really know anything about this woman's life at all, aside from the fact that she's married to this guy who, who was kicked in the face by one of his patients. There was only one doorbell and the small front garden was given over to gravel, the dustbins, and a couple of empty bright red plant pots. I was thinking that either Dr. Framlin owned the whole place or he was sharing with friends. I pressed the bell and a cheerful voice said it was on its way. The voice belonged to a plump, round-faced woman of the sort that develops a good personality because the alternative is suicide. So I was mistaken in thinking that she's his wife because I've just done a quick scan of the next pages and it's it's not actually really clear who she is. This is like the first and only time we encounter her. Um, but it says that she's a plump, round-faced woman and has developed a good personality because the alternative is suicide. And I read that a couple of times over and over again. And, and then I actually shared it on social media, on, on Facebook and Instagram, just to see if other people were reading it the same as me. Because that kind of comment, I would think, would apply to someone who's been through a lot in their life and has had to become cheerful and happy-go-lucky just to kind of deal with the shit that's happened to them. But that's not the case in this extract, because we don't know anything about this woman or the kind of life she's had. We only know that she is a plump and round-faced woman. So essentially what this passage is saying is that she is fat and she has had to develop a cheerful disposition because the alternative is killing herself which is kind of a disgusting remark to make and not really something that engenders uh, a liking for the protagonist that says things like that or the author that has the protagonist say things like that so um from that point onwards i was really struggling to kind of like the character and the author for saying something that I'd interpreted in that way and which a lot of the people that I shared this with also interpreted in that way so to be honest that just kind of left me with a lot a lot of negativity towards the book and it made it harder and harder to see past the issues that I was having with understanding some of the text because I wasn't really prepared to give the benefit of the doubt to the writing style anymore because it had so offended me in that way um so yeah, I wasn't, wasn't really enjoying it from that point onwards. Something else that I found just slightly tiresome was the fact that each section of the book where they go to a different location to investigate the crime is prefaced with a long paragraph about the history of that location. So I felt like 
I was already having trouble trying to remember the facts of the case, um, like who was involved, their names, etc, etc, what had happened. And also the magic stuff, um, the rules behind that and what was happening there, and trying to work out and hold in my mind um, the details of, of what had occurred in terms of the crime and what evidence they had. Then I was also being given a lot of extraneous information that I didn't need to know about dates, places, even important historical figures to do with the locations that they're talking about so that's just more names and dates and things that I didn't need to remember especially when the plot starts to unfold and we get like more historic faces for the hauntings and things that are going on it was just a lot and not necessarily information that I needed to hold on to and uh, needed to be given in the first place the book also kind of suffers from written by man syndrome um, which is fine like books can be written by men I'm not saying men can't write books but it, it is very obvious when describing female characters that it is being written by a man because the most of descriptions of the women tend to be about what their boobs are doing at any given moment. For example, if the character is at any distance from the man, he's examining her boobs and, and commenting on like the fact that they look good in whatever she's wearing and the fact that he's getting an erection just looking at them. Or if she's any closer to him, it's about how they're pressed against his side or his front or the fact that he's holding her and, again, erection territory. So that was quite tiresome to read, uh, especially because it happened with the two main female characters, Leslie and Beverly. They were just kind of reduced to this, like, hot woman with tits every time he described them, um, which I kind of wasn't here for. It was It was just kind of a bit annoying. So all in all, I did quite enjoy the actual plot of the book, uh, although the, the main mystery in the plot was kind of fumbled in its delivery because of these confusing scenes and very it got very confusing by the end because they were just heaping lore on top of lore on top of lore on top of a case that I couldn't adequately remember everyone who was involved with it. But the core intent behind that plot was a good one. I liked the setup, the originality of, of the uh, law behind being a wizard uh, and behind this branch of the police. And also some of the mysteries they included because Nightingale, who is his like mentor, is, is a lot older than he looks. Uh, and there's some sort of magic behind that that they're not really sure what it is. There's also a, a housekeeper slash maid um, at the building where they all live, like the, the wizards. Um, who is something that's not human and that's quite interesting and I, I would like to see that explored a little bit more but there was quite a lot of elements in the writing style that I didn't really appreciate namely the confusing nature of exposition and action scenes the focus on female characters physical attributes shall we say uh, and kind of getting horned up over that and also some of the kind of cruel comments especially the, the suicide one that I, I mentioned to you guys just made me take a dislike to the main character after I'd been previously kind of enjoying him uh, and also a dislike to the author who put that comment in and I don't really understand why that was necessary so I already have books two and three I don't know if I'm going to read them because to be honest this one was such a slog um, but if you want to go ahead and, and read them and let me know what you think, if you think that I should persevere with the series, um, let me know by the usual ways and I'll see about giving books two and three a look. In the meantime, I hope you've enjoyed this episode and I'll see you in the next one. Bye! <laughs>